I said it before and I'll say it again. That scene, that last scene. What does it mean? I'm the dude, you know? Get the fuck out of here. No, I cannot. That final scene starts now. Hi everyone, welcome to That Final Scene. My name is Sophie and you are most likely listening to this if you're following my Instagram page with the same name where I've been literally spoiling you for the past four years. I am joined by my hosts, a very dear old friend, Simon, and a very dear new friend, Ben. How are you guys doing? Not too shabby. Yeah, not too shabby, as Simon would say. How many drinks are we in? Well, because we're re-recording this intro <laughs> quite late into the night, I'd say when we arrived, Sophie had already had rum and coke. One of yeah. Them, yeah. Simon was having a cider and I came with the intention of not drinking and then had a drink. A little sipperoo. Yeah. Turned into a uh, wetting the whistle. Yeah. <laughs> Before we kick off, Simon, because you are the common thread in the group, I would love for you to give the breakdown in terms of how us three got together in my kitchen. Cool. Well, Sophie and I used to work together back in the day. It was your first ever gig in London or your first proper yeah, gig in yeah, London. Yeah, it was actually. At a startup and we became friends I think around that time, you probably started the Instagram account um, mm-hmm. as a kind of side project, and I didn't take much notice of it. <laughs> <laughs> that was a stupid idea. Simon does. <laughs> and then obviously, you built up an amazing community over the last few years. Ben and I were in the pub, and Ben mentioned this account, that final scene, and I was like, wait a minute, this is my friend Sophie's account. It was weird because, as you say, I mean, we were just sitting in the pub, and I was kind of like, yeah, I'm looking at getting back into podcasting and stuff like that. And I follow this really interesting Instagram page. It's called, like, That Final Scene. I think there's some, like, really good ideas. And I think I'd said, like, I think I'm just going to, like, message the Instagram page and be like, listen, I'm an audio producer. If you need mm. help, like, I'd love to help produce. And Simon's just like, but I know that final scene. <laughs> I know Sophie. I was like, oh, my God. It was so random, yeah. Prior to that, Ben had been telling me he'd been watching the new James Bond film. What's it called? No Time to Die. No Time to Die. <laughs> And how he'd cried at the end. And I was like, hang on a minute. Ben would be a great, great Inevitably, co-host. Inevitably, I'll talk about how I cried and that. Yeah. I'll cry again, but yeah. So this is our first show, right? I know a lot of people have been asking for that podcast to happen since forever. So it's kind of surreal that this is happening because I've been stressing about it for a while because I'm not very confident. But... Right now, I would say I'm equal parts excited and equal parts terrified, but I do think I wouldn't be able... No, I don't think... I know that I wouldn't be able to do this on my own, so I'm so glad you're my co-host and you're joining me in this wild journey. Ultimately, same thing with the page. We do want to be helpful, and we know that everyone is spending a lot of unnecessary time on streaming services right now, looking for things that are really not worth your time, so we do want to (laughs) make... Shots fired, my God. I know, but you know, like... I really, coming for you, HBO Max. I really enjoyed Point Blank last night. <laughs> point, point Break. <laughs> point Break. <laughs> you clearly That's didn't enjoy it that much. Point Break is iconic and it's not a Netflix original. So no. we do want to make sure we save you time and yeah. energy by giving you the recommendations that you're looking for. So this is how we're going to be usually starting our episodes every other week. We also want to make you guys feel heard, so we will have a community spotlight for 
you and for that final scene community where hopefully you will feel seen in a way. I think that's something. Seen. Seen in a way because (laughs) because I feel like that's lacking in movie review podcasts right now where you just have like overly technical conversations and things Mm. get, I don't know, a bit one-sided and no one hears from that movie going audience. I don't feel like there's something out there so we would love to spotlight you. And then finally, of course, we are going to be ending ending episode unsurprisingly with endings about films and tv shows aka final scenes so we're gonna be doing a blend of older final scenes like the godfather and the final scene of the wire and like things like that they're just do i have to watch all of the wire you have to the anniversary Start is in now, Simon. Okay. <laughs> the, <laughs> the anniversary is in december so you have a full year I'm giving you plenty of time. That's a big time. commitment in the wire, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it, a whole is it, lang- isn't it six, its own language? Okay. The American listener is going to be very offended that you said that. Yeah, but it's got a specific Baltimore thing where it's yeah. didn't loads of people complain that they couldn't hear the dialogue. Is this like when people subtitle Irish voices? Yes. Television, which I find highly offensive. When I see an Irish person on television and they subtitle them. Cool. So to kick things off, CinemaCon yes. is the one thing that everyone is talking about right now. CinemaCon is basically the biggest convention for cinema or movie theater owners. Is that like movie theater owners? Yeah, that's a, I mean, yeah, it's, that's like, it's like Comic Con at the cosplay, really. Right, yeah. right. But it's more of a B2B thing mm. where it kind of speaks to exhibitors and that sort of thing. Yeah. And what's interesting is that in the past few years, it has turned into, yeah, to your point, Comic Con in a way, but for films. So I feel like we are being slapped with uh, trailers <laughs> and exclusives, and yeah, back it, yeah. to back. So yeah, I mean, Ben, I would like to hear like what's your takeaway so far. I mean, I'm I'm happy that they've announced another Batman. I think that's uh-huh. really good news because I was in Ireland over the weekend. And I was talking with people about like my top ten films of all time, and I've put the new Batman film in there because I think it is fantastic. So I'm very happy that there's another one of those. Nice. I mean, every time Sony now, like, introduce a new Marvel movie, I genuinely just kind of <laughs> have to take a second because I, I'm really excited about Into the Spider-Verse, which mm-hmm. is, Simon, I don't know if it's a animated Spider-Man movie, which is the sequel, or sorry, Across the Spider-Verse mm-hmm. and then Beyond the Spider-Verse, which is, they're doing it in two parts, which I think will be really good. But I have thoughts, yeah, go yeah. on, yeah. What I'm more so... Uh, uh, a little bit worried about is these like strands of Spider-Man. So the rapper Bad Bunny right, El Muerto. is doing yeah. El Muerto. And I just don't know. I mean, they've announced Venom 3 as well. And they just kind of, I'd like there to be a little bit more clear direction from Sony mm-hmm. rather than just, we're just going to keep releasing movies, mm-hmm. you know, going to keep mm-hmm. doing it. To have a bit more of a Marvel style generation than flogging the Spider-Man horse because it kind of feels like <laughs> all they have at the minute. What's been your favorite trailer so far? Oh, have that's you a good question. Them? Um, see, a lot of the ones that, I've, that I'm really looking forward to, there hasn't necessarily been trailers so far. So obviously, Across the Spider-Verse had the trailer from last year. Really interested in The Grey Man, the Russo Brothers yeah. Netflix film, but that's just stills. Nothing really has excited me trailer-wise, as I say. It's more so been about these kind of slates that we're now getting for what's coming out in a year or two, two or three years' time. So they just literally play trailers, like <laughs> yeah. two-minute two trailers? <laughs> yeah, 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 to like a room full of people. Back-to-back trailers? No, so they'll do like convention, like they'll have convention halls and, you know, you'll have a room full of fans and... The... Do people clap the trailers? Oh, yes. Oh, Simon, they go crazy. 100%. And sometimes they'll bring out the cast and people will lose their mind, like go absolutely crazy. 
and it's really enjoyable. It's actually really enjoyable to watch. Like it's it's quite funny to watch, but yeah, it's also quite endearing in a way because oh, it yeah. does it does speak to movie theater owners from around the world, and to see that kind of event having that sort of not just impact but awareness mm. right now, where yeah. cinemas are kind of dying. Mm-hmm. It's very sweet in a way to see that spotlight to them. I really like that. I think it's quite nice as well because one of my kind of pet peeves is when people kind of badmouth stuff like Comic-Con and CinemaCon and all these kind of mm. conventions and they go, oh man, you just go and you get all these people who are obsessed and all this stuff. It's like, well, they're not they're not obsessed. They just like really care. Yeah. They really care about like source material. So when actors are like, man, I'm never going to Comic-Con again. I absolutely <laughs> hated it. I'm like, but your career is based around the fact that these people aren't like, especially like comic book fans and stuff like yeah. that or any movies that are made around other source material. It's not that, like the Lord of the Rings series that's coming out. Yeah. Anybody who gets annoyed about that is, they're not getting annoyed because you've done a bad job. It's because they care so much about Lord of the Rings and the books maybe. They're emotionally maybe, invested. Yeah, they're really emotionally invested in it. And then people go, oh, well, I'm not going to these things again because these people are crazy. Mm. It's like, no, they just, they really care. And your living is made off of that. And that's why it's really nice with these things because you get like, you know, the music communities off at Coachella, mm-hmm. cinema <laughs> communities at CinemaCon, you know, and getting together and actually getting to celebrate cinema. Mm. And actually it's, that's really important after we've had two years of not being able to go to the movies at all. Definitely. Um, What's your favorite bin? What's your favorite Charlie bin? Well. I won't ask Simon because Simon hasn't, hasn't watched okay. any of them. <laughs> My biggest takeaway from the convention so far is that Brad Pitt will never get not hot. Agreed. Did you the, see the, the bullet, tra- bullet train trailer? Yeah. Oh, oh my, my God. God. Like, yeah. World War Z vibes. Um, it's action packed. It looks yeah. like a lot of fun. I would say I do trust him because I've, mm. you rarely see him in really bad films. I feel like I know what he's doing. Like if he's, from what I've seen. I'm trying to go through my, my filmography now. He and hasn't. Think of bad Brad Pitt movies. It's hard to find one. He's been very selective with what he's yeah. yeah, very consistent in a way. So I do yeah. think that he's um he's gonna deliver something really good. This or, movie yeah. looks it looks like it looks like John Wick basically crossed with like the big Lebowski because he has a bit of like stoner vibes yeah. about him. <laughs> but he's like an international assassin who's stuck in the bullet train in Japan. Have you seen it once upon a time in Hollywood? No. Okay, oh, so it's br- oh my god. How I, old is he now though? I know his birthday, 18th Why? of December 1963. Don't ask. Interesting. Why do you know that? Don't ask. It's a long conversation for another episode. I have, a, I have, I have this tattoo on my wrist. <laughs> <laughs> That's not my data. It's on my left buttock. <laughs> um, I, the other, the other big thing that I want to talk about very quickly from CinemaCon is Warner's just did their own presentation, and I feel like I want to give everyone in the PR team a hug. Because I feel like they're going to need it. We have Aquaman 2 coming out with Amber Heard. And then we have The Flash with Ezra Ezra Miller. Miller. And with both of them being in the news for Mm. different reasons. I just wouldn't want to work for Warner Brothers PR right now. So I'm just sending you guys a virtual hug if you're listening. Yeah. Do you think people would actually boycott her film? Or do you think the publicity is going to be exceptional and she'll benefit from, from it? That's a very good question. I don't think that there's going to be a massive boycott uh, necessarily, but it, especially People just from, want to go see it. I mean, especially exactly. from fanboys, like they don't really care about Amber, really. Yeah. But I do think it's going to make the PR team's life very hard mm. in terms of how you market the film, how you put it out there. Like, yeah. do you put your in posters? Like, does it do like a press store? Like, what's the conversation around that? And that's going to be very how complicated. How involved in the trailers is she? Yeah, yeah definitely. 
And then finally, very quickly, a quick shout out to the Crimes of the Future uh, trailer, David Cronenberg's. Oh, yeah, the Viggo Mortensen movie. Yes, he released the full trailer. I didn't get a single second from it, but that's DC (laughs) for you. Uh, So I'm just very excited. What's this? It's a movie. No. No, I liked it. No. Can I say something? No. I don't get it. What don't you get about it? (laughs) So... I would like to hear from you, Simon, what's going on in your movie and TV world at the moment. I'm just fresh off the back of a point break viewing. How does it feel? Pretty good. Okay. Nice. A bit naughty, a bit of a late night guilty pleasure <laughs> oh, so viewage. Good. Is, that, um, is that guilty though? Have you guys seen it? Yeah. Yeah, there's, I also would say there's nothing guilty about it. It's not like Speed 2. I mean, no, there's nothing guilty. There's a character <laughs> called Johnny Utah. Yeah, exactly. Shots are fired again. <laughs> There's lines like... Little hand says it's time to rock and roll. <laughs> lines like this. No! <laughs> and really subtle music. Oh my god. There's also an excellent cameo from uh, Anthony Kiedis from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Oh, yeah, yeah, Anthony Kiedis is in it. Isn't he in, he's in it at one point as one of... Uh, I think he tries to beat up Keanu Reeves. It's essentially a bunch of reckless punks mm-hmm. trying to... Mm-hmm. Push things to the edge. Can I Can I just give you one piece of advice? Do not watch the remake. There's like a remake from about oh, four awful. or five years ago. I had it's to work on good. that. It's, it's not so good bad. at all. That's it's such a shame. Is it it's just point break. It <laughs> feels much more, I mean, robotic in a way. It doesn't have the soul of the... It's, like, got, of, it's, got, you know, it's got too much finesse. Well, there's something cool about it. Like, the cool thing about point break is, is that it feels like a little bit rough. And yeah, like right. it is, it, like back when, it, like before the days of triple X... I feel like it's Point Break is great because it's before the days of that so it's a little bit like rough and ready and also mm. Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze are both amazing yeah. in it isn't Gary Busey in it as yes. like Patrick yeah. Swayze's yeah. Uh, it's one of those movies that I really like because I feel like I can just sit down and just be like okay I just know that for the next like two hours I'm yeah. just going to be able to you can just, disengage your brain. yeah disengage and just be like blown away like yeah so I watched that and then I watched Cape Fear I thought I just watched was half it your of first it. time yeah oh my god okay how was that like I watched it because there's a UK garage track that that samples this line. Cape Fear. And that's what made me watch it. I feel like it's one of the... uh, Satirise is the wrong word. But it's one of the most, like, parodied movies in any kind of TV. Because there's, like, the whole Simpsons episode about Mm -hmm. Sideshow Bob and, like... Even the fact that he rolls out from underneath the car. Yeah. Yeah. Rick and Morty did an episode of it where the woman is under the car and she's blatantly screaming, Cape Fear! Cape <laughs> Fear! Do you feel like it has aged well? Yeah, I think it's I think it's okay. It's of, it's obviously of its... What was it? No, early 90s? Yeah. 1993, I want to say. Yeah, but I that, yeah. Don't quote me on that. In terms of dating, there is the scene where... Um, what's the Robert De Niro plays the disgruntled yeah. criminal that's been released from prison and he's trying to get back at the lawyer that put him in jail yeah at one, at one point he goes to the lawyer's daughter's school and there's this really dark scene because she must be only like 13 mm. and he corners her in the school's theatre and there's this really creepy scene that goes on for ages which has these sort of sexual overtones and that was quite, kind of hard to watch but then mm. I don't think that I think it was it was presented in a way that was really dark. So I yeah, guess. it's not pretending to be something else. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I think yeah, I think it's dated okay. Yeah. yeah. I feel like there's some horror anniversaries probably coming up that we can get someone watching. October stuff. is coming. Well, Salem's Lot, Stephen King, Salem's Lot. Oh, Salem. It's a it's a remake of a. Re- I mean, I've read the book, mm. and I watched the first. I want to say film. 
I don't know. I used to be obsessed with Stephen King, and then in the past ten years, he's done no, not him specifically, but he's he's been an executive producer in every single film or TV mm. show they've done on the back mm. of his books, and I've just been majorly disappointed with eighty percent of <laughs> what you didn't like. Uh, yes, parts one or two. I did like it, for example. Mm. Um, I didn't like the second one. I didn't like Lizzie's story, which came out as a short. No, sort like a miniseries on Apple TV Plus. What's interesting is my favorite Stephen King book is actually Lizzie's story. And when I saw that there was a miniseries with uh, Julianne Moore and Clive Owen, I uh, love Clive Owen. I love him. He could have been James Bond. I'm man. in love with him. He was he. I think he was in the running for it before Daniel Craig. The croupier. Really? The croupier is his absolute high point. Have you seen no, the Children of Men is his high point. Oh, I've not seen that. We're going to have an argument. You haven't seen Children? Oh, my God. Simon. Children, children, oh, children of Men is dude, one of the best honestly, films ever made. Yeah, hands down. 100 It's incredible. Okay. It's on my list. I have to do that for final yeah. scene. That's a fantastic yeah. film. We should do it for the anniversary of Brexit. It's very relevant. <laughs> it's very relevant. Like, it's coming up in June. So. That, that and V for Vendetta. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's <laughs> or 1984. Very, yeah. um, what I read is that he was, like, it was the very first time he was actually writing the script for the series. Okay. And I was so excited because... You'd never seen him in a screenwriter uh, role, yeah. Mm. And you guys, it was the dullest <laughs> thing I've ever seen in my life. Oh no! And it's such an eye-opening moment for me because I was yeah. like, it's so interesting how someone can be such a talented novelist and not really know how to translate his work on the screen. Translate the film, yeah. Which is why I get, like, I mean, I don't, I ha- I've never written a novel in my life, so I can't even yeah. imagine, but it sounds like it's a different, no, it sounds like it must be a different, a different wheel, yeah, wheelhouse in a way. Um, so that was disappointing. Um, but yeah, Salem's Law is coming up. I'm going to see it anyway. And I do want to say that it actually, because of Warner's doing their recent um, presentation on CinemaCon, it's one of the things that they really want to push. Yeah. Because Warner's is really doubling down on the Halloween stuff, like with it and Conjuring, like oh, they're yeah. owning, the, yeah, they're really owning that month every did they, year. Did they have that new Ethan Hawke one? Have you seen that one? Is it the, the Black Mask or something like that? Uh, is it the Black Phone? No? Yeah. Is that, is that, yeah. It's no. the Black Fax Machine. Okay, that takes out. That takes out. It must have, yeah. Um, I don't know if it's Warner's. I don't know if it's Warner's, yeah, but it could be. Mm. Uh, It could be. Cool. So I think we can move on to the next segment of our show, which is the community spotlight. When I look back at the past four years that this space is active and I've been running it, I don't think that we would be doing this today if it weren't for you. And I wouldn't be joined by Ben and Simon if it weren't for the participation and support and appreciation you guys have shown the page. So the people that know me and know my journey with the page know how thankful I've been and I am with what you have given me in a lot of ways in the past few years. So... The other day, I asked people on the page, what is the one film that changed your life and in what way? The 
the responses were absolutely phenomenal. Mm. Um, yeah. Like always, uh, these people always come back with such thoughtful, funny, introspective, and wonderful comments. So we'd love to shout out a few. But before I do that, do you, Ben and Simon, have one film that changed your life for better or for worse? And in what way? Such a difficult question. Yeah. I know. Mm. I'm throwing a curveball at you. It's easy to name films that had a big effect on you or made you feel something. But a film that changed your life is big. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying, like, as someone who's done, like, I'm drawn before I'm trying to think of like you know those films because there's, I can probably pick out some that I made you know like inspired me as someone who wanted to act and do drama mm. and kind of mm-hmm. be a creative person like I always go back to In Bruges as <laughs> oh yeah you know Colin Farrell's performance in that film made me go holy shit mm-hmm. that's really like I mm-hmm. would really love to do something like that and even though it's not, it's not the most celebrated film of all time. It's still like a, it's like it's a low budget indie mm-hmm. film, really, about two hit, two so hitmen, yeah. two yeah. hitmen in Belgium, you know, and mm. it just happens to have this incredible cast, and it's an Irish film as well, you know, always plays quite nicely for me. But just going back to starting it all for me, I have such a vivid recollection of seeing the Phantom Menace in the cinema. Okay. Uh, and. And just seeing it in this tiny little cinema screen that I don't think I don't think the cinema is even there where I went to see it in, but I just have such a clear recollection of going to that and being like, oh man, going to the movies is cool. Holy crap! Mm. And this is something I really enjoy, and it's become such a huge part of my life, like a big part of who I am is like referencing movies and quoting movies and all mm. that stuff. And as I say, going into drama. So those are two that have probably not done necessarily changed my life, but have definitely had an right. influence kind of on me and like my interests and. That and all the Bond movies. I mean. it, it does sound like it got you into cinema in a way, and more profoundly. So. Yeah, the, for me, that so. would be Inception. Really? Yeah, in terms of like the film that I saw on the big screen and being like, holy fuck, they can do that? Yeah. <laughs> like that, that was a kind of like mm. mindset shift for me, like from being someone who's watching movies to watching films. You yeah, know, that kind you. of subtle... Inception is like sensory overload isn't it the sound yeah. design is incredible the visuals are so engulfing it's it's like an assault on the senses isn't it in the cinema and I someone someone one of the comments someone made referenced inception didn't yeah. they? i think on, yeah. on, on on the post as well that was yeah. something that someone had mentioned i know it's, it's clearly quite the, an inf- it's yeah. like a, from a filmmaker's point of view mm-hmm. it's a very like a, mm-hmm. and actually a lot of nolan's work yeah we had a couple of people saying that it was the film that got them to think about filmmaking <laughs> as a career and it's interesting because yeah. ultimately Inception is about the filmmaking process, a very like yeah. meta film for yes. Nolan himself. It also explains something that's pretty complicated on paper yeah. in a really simple, clever way. Which is interesting because he's tried, Christopher Nolan's tried to replicate that and actually I feel like he hasn't hit the mark. Mm-hmm. Definitely tried to, read, has, has, has attempted similar ideas with Interstellar and then with mm. Tenet. Actually, there's almost too much. Mm-hmm. Whereas other films like Dunkirk, obviously Dunkirk, again, is just a spectacle like of mm-hmm. a film. It kind of strips it back and it doesn't try to be too clever. And mm-hmm. that sounds like what mm-hmm. um, Oppenheimer, his next one's going to yeah. be. Yeah. But it's interesting that like, the, um, Inception feels like his peak. The inventor of the nuclear yeah. bomb. Yeah. I yeah. do feel like, I think you're right in the sense Tenet did try to be Inception steroids in a way. Yeah. It feels like that. 
Interstellar did work for me, but I think mm. for very different reasons. I think it was his... I don't know. For me, a lot of people say that Inception is his most emotional film. For me, that's mm. Interstellar. It just Same. Kind of, it's connected. Yeah. With Inception is... I mean, I always go back to these films, but Inception is like science fiction Bond, but the perfect sure. way to do it. I remember like, seeing Inception in the cinema, and the first time that he bends the land, mm-hmm. I found that really shocking, and the, and yeah. the, the frame completely bends and twists, mm. and your perspectives are lost. And I found yeah. that a very powerful moment. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whereas, I agree, Interstellar made me cry, whereas Inception didn't. Mm-hmm. The bit in mm-hmm. Interstellar when he's stuck behind the bookcase. Oh. But uh, my hot take on it, his best film mm-hmm. is still The Insomnia. Prestige. Okay. Wow. And I get, and that film gets. And do you know what? I've I've seen people film. give that give that film hate. I think the Prestige is incredible. Mm. It's such a good film, considering the Prestige. What's it about? It's now Simon. I'm going to give you a one line synopsis that's going to make you hate this film. Okay. It's about two warring magicians. <laughs> <laughs> now I've sold that terribly, but it's actually it's it's brilliant. Okay. David Bowie's in it. He plays mm. David Bowie plays Nikola Tesla. Oh, so good. Yeah, it's about two magicians in the 1800s and this yeah. and this feud that they have, but it's it's fantastic. It's Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman back in the Another, day. Another um, comment on your post was for um, Into the Wild, mm-hmm. and that had a massive effect on me when I first really? watched it. The themes of like freedom and yeah. breaking out of what society want you to do with your life, I found that such a powerful film. Mm. I don't know if it's changed my life, though, but... yeah. It's one of the, it's, it's up there. And the other one I was going to mention for myself was Kids. Yeah? The 1995 film. Because I remember one night I was at home alone. I must have been about 12 or something. My mum and dad were out. I was probably flicking around on TV mm. like really late. And this film just started to draw me in. And it was like really had this sort of dark, exciting energy about it. And I got mm-hmm. sucked in and I couldn't sleep the whole night because I mm-hmm. found the film so terrifying. And I remember that night my neighbours were having a party and there was a party in the film where a girl's raped. She's basically so out of it. And this guy rapes her when she's on the sofa. And I was lying in bed listening to my neighbours have this party thinking, what's happening in that party? Is it like what's happened mm. in kids? And will I have to go to parties like that when I'm older? And it had this really God. deep effect on me. Yeah. You know? And I never really talked to anyone about it. I never like told my mum and dad or yeah. anything, but it kind of like sat in my head for a long time. So maybe that film did change my life. Yeah. Yeah, Just thinking about it, I mean, I yeah. think I, it, and it's, I mean, I saw it in, in, in its play form, but I'm sure there is a film version of it. But mm. I saw Death of a Salesman. Ah, mm-hmm. oh, that's great. So I saw that on stage in uh, Stratford upon Avon in the Shakespeare Theatre. It was after I had like dropped out of uni and stuff like that. And it's the only time I've ever watched something and it made me go, holy shit, that's how I'm feeling. Mm. And, it, and so much so, I actually went, I went to try and get into drama school. And that I used that monologue and they asked me, why'd you pick that? And I was like, because this literally explained, this put into words how I was feeling about a year ago. Hmm. And nothing's ever done that before. Oh, wow. And I was like, blew my mind that play. Yeah. I thought it was incredible. The character in it, the, the you know, the eldest son, I was like, holy shit, that's me. <laughs> like, that's literally how I felt. And I'm sure there's a film version of it, so I can probably throw that in there. <laughs> it's incredible what films can do to you when it comes to identification. Well, it makes you, it, it can make you realize that that was the thing for me where I didn't realize I was like, holy shit, that's, that's how I feel. Yeah. You know, I was like, it, I hadn't thought about it. And I was like, hang on, if I think that's exactly why I feel the way I feel. Mm. Right. Yeah. And then after that, I was like, it was like a realization. Did it give what, you like validity in your feeling? Dude, my mate said it was so awkward. He's like, I could hear you sobbing in the theater. <laughs> I was like, I was like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very emotional play. <laughs> this is a safe space. 
And uh, I feel like we're going to be having a lot of emotional... Trust me, when we time. get onto the No Time to Die conversation, I will actually... Okay, okay. Right. When we get onto Mrs. Doubtfire... Let me get the napkins. Yeah. When Nuns on the Run is finally brought to the table... But actually, that links into the film, which was our homework to watch later, which is essentially watching a play yeah. in... In 12 Angry Men, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 12 Angry Men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, anyway. shall we start with some of the community responses? Yeah, go for it. Um... I am going to start with my very good friend, comedian of cinema, who said, I was a Truman show when I was 12, and I'm convinced it jump-started my depression. The older I got with more viewings, it's turned around completely in my mind. Favorite film of all time. So that's that's he's saying that, um, that the meaning of the film has changed as he's got older. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right. Now I was just going to say, that's a huge thing. Like the, the, From watching it at the age 12 to watching it 10 years later. Mm-hmm. You just know, you notice things completely differently. I mean, I just need to watch it. Have you not seen the trailer? You would love the trailer. Oh, it's fantastic. Has that got Jim Carrey in it? Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. one of Jim Carrey's best films. Yeah. yeah. I am going to butcher people's names. I'm just going to read some of the comments without the names. So I'm really sorry about that. Um, you know who you are, though, I'm sure. Yes. Um, Lord of the Rings. I was depressed and self-harming and was seriously considering ending my life. And then the film showed me that life is worth living, that there's some good in this world and it's worth fighting for, mm. for your friends, for yourself and for the world. This is beautiful. Mm. Yeah. La La Land uh, showed me that sometimes your heart can be broken in the most beautiful way. It's a heartbreaking ending. I have yeah. it on my wall right now. Mm. Um, it was, yeah, it got me through some rough well, it's a real ending as well, isn't it? It's I mean, it's, it doesn't. It doesn't try. La La Land does a quite good job in that. It doesn't try and sugarcoat it with. We're just gonna have a happy ending and. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Ryan Gosling and uh, Emma Stone live happily ever after. It's like yeah, you can love someone you and love someone still and end things. Just doesn't work out, yeah. yeah. Arrival that came up a few times in the comments. Mm. I'm not going to spoil the ending, but when it came out and saw the ending, I thought, "What would I ever choose?" Then two years later, I had a son saw the movie again and it makes the ending so much more crashing right. I still think about it from time to time it oh, is interesting that's so sweet that is really interesting because I think it goes back to the age not just you know watching things at different ages but watching things after like different milestones yeah. in your life or even like watching films when you're in a relationship or watching mm. films when you're not in a relationship mm-hmm. and how kind of that resonates with you as well like that's really interesting that definitely this person had a son and then it completely changes your opinion of it yeah because you bring things back to you mm. in a way. Yeah, well, it just hits home so much harder when you can actually, you know, put yourself mm. in that person's shoes of, I know what that feels like. It's now. like it's like over your life, you amass more empathy. Yeah. And you yeah. connect with more stuff as you get older. Because I remember re-watching the 80s film Weird Science. Yeah. Mm. And there's a scene where there's boobs in it. But <laughs> when I watched it as a kid, it never registered. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, And yeah. so, like, That'd it just shows... That's like taking to what you were just saying to an extreme where because it's not important to you at that age, it just doesn't go in. Whereas later on in life, different things become important. At at, at a certain point in a boy's life, boobs become important. Well, I I think I've told Simon this story before, but I used to, back in the days of like recording movies off the TV onto like VCRs, uh, having Goldeneye on recorded off the TV because ITV always used to show the Bond movies. Mm-hmm. Is that the one that you taped over your mum and dad's wedding? No, so th- no, that was, that was, that was, that was for, I think that was for Barney. 
And it was only when I bought the DVD about 10 years later, like I'd say I'd watch, like I, I've been watching the Bond movie since I was about five. Mm. So Goldeneye came out in what, 90s? What's your favourite Bond movie? My favorite Bond movie. Oh, that's a very different question. That you'll need to give me more time on this. I episode, find that question incredibly easy. Yeah, we'll need. No, I don't find that question easy at all. But so I, I then a couple of years later, I bought Goldeneye on DVD. Yeah. And I noticed all the scenes that my parents obviously had deemed too raunchy and had stopped the 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 video recording oh, and then no recorded it again. And I had this whole thing of what. I thought I thought the film jumped to another point at this, <laughs> and then I was like, "Jesus Christ!" There's about ten minutes this film Not I haven't it's seen. Not dodgy edits, or were they really well no, done? No, I was about six. Of course, they weren't well done edits. This is like it's like my dad pressing the stop button and then waiting until it goes through, and then being like pressing record again, and it would because it would just automatically jump into an ad break, and I'd be like, "Oh, okay, it must just be that the ads are now." Oh uh, yeah, the and, news or something. Yeah, exactly. Well, that was not the case. Moving on. Um... Moon has always had a profound effect in me. It was the first film that made me realize how terrified of being alone I am. I think it's my greatest fear. With that in mind, I've seen Moon eight times now and it never fails to make me cry. Moon is one of my favorite sci-fi films. It's actually the, I want to say the, the debut film from Duncan Jones with... Uh, I think so, yeah, with Sam he, Rockwell. Dave, yeah, uh, he's um, David Bowie's son. All oh, right. And his mm. debut film is just like... Yes. Literally out of the out of this mm. world. He's um, gone on to also make Dungeons and Dragons. Was Dungeons and Dragons? Good yeah. grief. Quite in a world of Warcraft. World Quite of Warcraft. Quite in 180. Yeah. Um, Moon's but, a fantastic film though. Yeah. So and the ending of that, I mean, we'll, we can probably do a yeah. final scene on Quite elven. No. Okay. <laughs> um, the Secret Life of Walter Mitty made me realize life is too short to not make it an adventure and it's never too late to start living. That's I've cute. Not, I've, not, I've not seen that. It's a very good is film. Is this the Ben Siller film? yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I feel like the trailer is, um, I don't know, it tells you a very different picture. Okay. So I would recommend not watching the trailer. Oh, maybe watch it afterwards because it's a very good trailer, right, but okay. I feel like it takes away from the actual film. Interesting. Um, Life is Beautiful and the Shawshank Redemption, which came up a few times, mm. both saved me at a point in my life by showing me as long as you breathe, you fight, and as long as you fight, you hope. And so here I am still fighting and hoping. Sweet. That's really nice. Poetic, mm. we have, yeah, we have poets in this. You've got uh, some very poetic, Jesus. yeah, followers, my God. Uh, Simon's favorite, Showgirls. Girl. <laughs> so, <laughs> so earlier on, Sophie read out this post, which is, well, it's Showgirls because it taught me how, how to teach Versace. Now, <laughs> Sophie had a very big misunderstanding of what Showgirls was. Not the uh, 90s burlesque dancer film. She thought it was Dreamgirls, the film starring Beyonce and Jennifer Hudson and Eddie Murphy. Anywhere. <laughs> Which are I two, can... if you go into Showgirls expecting Dreamgirls, you are in for a big mm. shock. <laughs> Anywhere I can slot Beyonce in, I'm going to do it. Um, it's a Wonderful Life taught me how much beauty and gratitude I could find in the death of my youthful dreams and aspirations. The oh, gift. man. Wow. Wait, wait. We have to, we can't end on this one. <laughs> no, no, no. I have, no, no. I, I know, I know which one we're ending with. No, but wait a second. The gifts life brought me were more fulfilling than those I yearned for. Ah, that's uh, okay. That's really? Good. Like? That's, that's good. Well done. Yeah. Seth's kiss. Chef's kiss. <laughs> <laughs> and the final one, okay. which I feel like we should end with this one. Ratatouille taught me that rats can really cook. <laughs> <laughs> we just went through a lot of heavy quotes mm, and like messages yeah. from people, mm, but I do feel good. like... That, that's a really nice uh, almost justification what we were talking about earlier about, you know, cinema and people getting back to the cinema is yeah. that 
you know, anybody who says that movies are just these vapid commercial things that mm-hmm. are just massive money pits and that, you know, that's all they are. Mm. Kind of shows you that, you know, there's movies on that list. Lord, yeah. of, the, Lord of the Rings has 12 Academy Awards. Mm-hmm. And it just, yeah, it just goes back to, you know, it shows that it's different for everyone and that actually, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. there's a... People connect with different things. Exactly. Depending on where you are in your life, depending on what mm. you've experienced, you know, the person who talked about arrival and having a kid and mm. how that changes it. And it's just, yeah. I love that. Cool. I've written um, arrival down on my list of things to watch. Yes, arrival is fantastic. I would, I would watch it again with you if you want to. I'm okay. going to movie night. Uh, cool. I am calling this a wrap. Yeah, we'll take a break and we'll be back with the main segment for spoilers. For, uh, for 12 Angry Men, the thing that we're actually here to, we're the one that we're here to actually discuss the final scene of. So yes. we'll take a quick break and cool. uh, yeah. The rambling will continue. The rambling will continue. <laughs> oh, look, a message from our sponsor. G.I. Jane 2, can't wait to see it. Nah, yo, hold my poodle. Hey, yo, what's up? Y'all got a problem? Y'all want some of this? Without much further ado. Here we go again. So our very first final scene is going to be for 12 Angry Men. The very first post from my Instagram page, so it, it only feels fitting to kick Definitely. off the podcast uh, with it. Mm-hmm. So, what is Twelve Angry Men about? Who wants to give the rundown? It is a 1957. That's very specific. I love it. Uh, release, and it's about twelve jurors deliberating over the fate of a. 18-year-old boy accused of murdering his dad. And it's all set in one room. It's pretty intense. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting from, like, single-cam kind of one-shot movies that this actually did it. Kind of did I mean, there's cuts in it, but it did it in the 50s. I think for its day, it was probably quite progressive because it covers the different viewpoints of the jurors Mm -hmm. and covers their different prejudices. And I think the actual premise of the film, which kind of leads to the final scene, is that as they do try to reach a unanimous decision, there is one person in the room, one juror, is it juror number eight, I want to say? He does cast considerable doubt on elements of the case. Mm. And this is how the film begins. That that happens in the first 15 minutes of the film, where it's like, I don't think we should make a judgment that quickly. quickly. We should interrogate what we have in front of us, which yeah. I feel like is, to your point, is very interesting. The film was directed by Sidney Lumet, who's one of my favorite directors, like Dog Day Afternoon. You have a bunch of other films that I, I don't want to go on a tangent <laughs> about. Um, but it's interesting because he's a director that has a very deep interest in understanding how individuals can come together mm. to move past corruption, which I feel like that's a common theme among his filmography. Yeah. And when it comes to that film in particular, what I don't really like is that sometimes it's being passed as courtroom drama, but I do feel like it's much more complex. And it's, than not, that. Even, it's not even in a courtroom. It's not even in the courtroom, yeah. Which I feel like, yeah, to your point, it's not the right way to talk about it, but mm. courtroom cells, you know, because you have yeah. that kind of. It's very dense thematically. I found it like watching a play. Because mm-hmm. when I first put it on, I thought, fucking hell, this is going to be hard work. Mm. Even at the beginning, the sound design, or it's not really sound design, the, the yeah. sound of the, of the court 
It's really echoey and really you stressful. Can, you can actually, for a, bit, for, the, for a good five or ten minutes, you can't really hear what anyone's saying. Yeah, it sounded like oh, yeah. the type of film that my mum used to watch on a Sunday afternoon, like a Second World War film. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I was just like, oh, I don't know. Guns of Navarone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then I realised that all of that stuff was going to be used as a device to crank up the tension later on. Yeah. And they play with loads of clever things like the sound... Uh, it's obviously very, very hot, so all the guys start sweating. Yeah, the room really is profusely. supposed to just be like a pressure cooker that like mm. builds and builds and mm. builds and builds until the end. Which interestingly, the thing I notice is that you can see the clear turning point in the film is when the fan gets turned on. Mm. They close the windows, they turn the light on, and then they finally switch on the fan, and everybody else starts simmering, calming down and down and down, except for mm-hmm. number three, who has been just building yeah. for the entire film. That's funny so well that you done. say. Um, it's it's like watching a play. So Simon knows this. I did like Amdram for years. And the first play I ever did was 12 Angry Men. Ah. Oh, and I wow. played juror number seven, the one who's obsessed with getting off to the baseball game. And that was how, that was the first thing I ever did. Can you drama. identify with that juror? Do you know what? Weirdly, I mean, <laughs> I, I'm very get interested in sports. Yeah, get me out of here. I've got tickets <laughs> for the game. I mean, probably sounds like something I would say. But, um, but it is definitely, there's definitely elements of, it's written almost like the dialogue, especially because yeah, once I once I started to frame it as I'm watching a play, yeah. then everything changed, and suddenly the theatre of the mind kicks in, mm-hmm. and it's all about what they're saying and not the acting, which I found quite wooden at the beginning. Yeah, yeah I think I, I said this to Simon on the way here. Like Henry Fonda, who's a, an amazing actor, you yeah. know, one of the best of his generation. At least for the first, it, much like a play. It feels like he's only getting comfortable the first 15, 20 minutes. And it's probably to, to do with a lot of the way they film it. A lot of it is just shots like face onto the camera. Yeah. There Do you think they filmed it of, sequentially then? Do you think they filmed it? In I order? mean, it would make sense. It's mm. something like that. It makes sense to film sequentially. Obviously, you'd film it over a couple of weeks, but it makes sense that rather than like a traditional filming where you're filming stuff in different slates and you have different, you know, jumping from one scene to another, something like that makes sense to do that. But mm. it feels like. You know, he really only hits his stride. He only really hits his stride when we get to the, like the knife, the knife comes out and he starts, Mm. you know, okay, that's when he starts going. Juror number three, I think, and we obviously we get onto it for the final scene. Yeah. It's just incredible. Like for a film, for a film from the fifties. Yeah. Is incredible. Like his performance in that is so like the one thing I, 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 so I wrote notes in it when I watched it and he's so Brando. Esque, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like he he like he prowls around and he really kind of like like it's a very physical performance just in the way that he kind of towers over people even in the way that like even has his trousers pulled up really high to kind of make him look almost taller mm-hmm, and he mm-hmm. kind of towers over people and he never breaks like the rest of them are wiping their brow and everything like that he's yeah. the one that brings a story about his son yeah. a couple of times and that's the climax of the ending, ultimately, because the way I saw it anyway, this guy is suffering from the worst kind of sin, which is pride. Yeah. And it's, as you said, it's he's the hardest to crack because mm. pride is so hard to get through. <laughs> yeah. And ultimately, he has like a full 360 in the end that's yeah. like... The reason that I've been so stubborn is the reason that I actually do not want this kid to have a fair verdict yeah. in a way. Which I'm not saying, the, and that's another conversation, I'm not saying the kid was innocent, but there was so much evidence to imply that he was not guilty. Beyond that kind of doubt. Exactly. Yeah. There's a kind of element. So for me, that was really, really interesting. Um, I had seen it, obviously, ages ago, which is why mm. I posted about, about it four years ago. 
And I only rewatched it recently because I knew we were going to talk about it in the podcast. I did have very different experiences watching the film now and watching it four years ago because we're focusing on the fallen scene. Ultimately, I remember four years ago, I came out of the film thinking, oh, I'm not sure if the ending worked for me. The court, like the exterior courtroom courtroom scene did work and for reasons we can talk about, mm. but the climax of like, why did your number three, the guy we're talking about, break in the end, for me yeah. felt unearned in a way. Because I was like, what is he doing? Why is he saying not guilty now? Yeah. I felt like the payoff, which is the scene itself, like him breaking down, his breaking point, as he says say so himself, wasn't able to match the effectiveness of the setup and the planting of... Well, it feels like it's over very it, quickly. And it, it, I didn't get it. Like, I was like, why are you taking out picture? Like, why are you taking out the picture of your kid? Like, is that when he rips it up? Yeah. 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 And I don't think, looking back now on my second rewards, I realized that it's not the fact that seeds weren't there. I feel like mm. the planting was done well. But I feel like because we had literally 12 angry men yeah. in one room and you have so much information from a dialogue perspective, you feel like on a first watch, you have so much information coming to you that mm. I was like, I actually don't remember why you're angry. Yeah. Which is like, Simon, like you, you haven't watched this film before, and you didn't even remember that this guy was actually like the last juror to turn his vote. Mm. Because Yeah, I have it, to say that for me, that wasn't the most impactful m- moment in the film. It, it didn't, that wasn't the climax for me at all. Which is... Why I'm kind of critical about it, because it should have been, because he's the last one that kind of breaks yeah. down and ultimately yeah. gets everyone to go back home. Because yeah. he's the last man standing in a way that's like, mm. fuck it. And you have this incredible scene where he kind of breaks down. I feel like to your point, Ben, the performance is amazing. And I, yeah. like that scene is so powerful. Even though I agree, Simon, it's not the most powerful scene. I feel like the old man, the racist... When everyone turns on him, like turns his back on him, I feel like that's incredibly powerful. Mm. Very theatrical, as you said. Um, That's that's where it goes full like thespian play almost of like everybody just walks away. Because it's interesting, you know, when I look at it and, you know, you think about your own relationships with your own parents and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And, you know, the only difference between his son and the kid on the stand is that his son ran away. He projects mm. his relationship yeah. with his kid onto the defendant. But I also think he projects, he, that also then comes, because there's at least at certain points in the film, there's relationships to his own father and how his father would have treated yeah. him. Yeah. And it's almost this... Gener- generational, vicious, yeah. It's a generational, it's a vicious cycle of these mm-hmm. things because there's so much focus on how you know the kid's dad used to beat him up and all that and you know coming from these rough neighbourhoods. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And his whole thing is, well, you know, you treat your parents with respect. I would have done that or I would have gotten, you know... I would have gotten a slap. Violent, yeah. And yeah. His language is very violent. Like, yeah, he's stupid very, kid. Yeah. Like, you wore your heart out. Like, it's just so violent. He's so aggressive. But he's so aggressive for the whole film. Yeah. I think he's calm. He's calm for about 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then from there, which interestingly, do you know what? From, from, a, from a performance point of view, even though it is, it's incredible, like, it's the best performance in the film, you almost wish it built a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. And especially because in the whole sense of that the room's a pressure cooker and everything that's going on, it's getting hot, it's getting sweaty. All the men are like pressure cookers as well. Yeah. That have their individual moments where they go off. Yeah. Except his is just, he is he is already a breaking point yeah. when he gets there. 
Mm. And actually, I wouldn't. I'd love to see it to see an actor do it as like from a from a play perspective, which is great because you can see these things on stage. Is to how people do Shakespeare now, how you interpret characters differently. Mm-hmm. I'd love to see that character with like a slower build mm-hmm. that it builds up and up and up mm-hmm. and the aggression isn't automatically there because he comes mm-hmm. in as this quite like reserved man. He's trying to sell himself to the advertising guy. He's trying to give him his card and everything. Yeah. And But then automatically he just snaps. I think perhaps it's because the script feels quite linear and yeah. if, if they had teased parts of this guy's explosion earlier on and, yeah. and got you to buy into the this and, and hint towards it that would have led to a better Do you know because I, I was thinking about this if what if you made 12 angry like if 12 angry men was written today of like how would it be done in mm. modern cinema mm. it'd probably be about half an hour longer it'd probably be two hours we'd have flashbacks to the jurors <laughs> lives we'd see his the time that he slapped his son and we probably wouldn't find out if they vote him guilty or not you know you'd end up you'd get to the end and it would be a thing of like mm. They just walk out. We don't actually see what the final... We don't even see him say not guilty. We just see a breakdown and then they leave. Yeah. And that would be it. Because in modern cinema, we don't really... You know, there's there's so much today that's given on like the cliffhanger. Right. <laughs> or like the yeah. suspenseful ending. Yeah. You know, yeah. Inception 7 we were talking about earlier. Sure. You know, the so much built around yeah. suspense. And then you can make a sequel. It's interesting because we talk about a final scene and because it does feel like a one-take film almost because it's a single-setting yeah. film. It's hard to say what is the final scene. And I think technically yeah. it is the exterior courtroom scene yeah. where they go out and they tell each other their names, which I think is very sweet. Mm. But yeah, leading up to that, you have the breaking point of juror number three that goes on a tantrum, really. And then he's like, not guilty, not yeah. guilty, not guilty. And then it's the transition is very quiet. Because I feel yeah. like, you, you know the saying, some things are better left unsaid? Yeah. There's no point in, in even arguing. I feel like everyone in the room got where he was coming from mm. and all of that shame that was projected onto the table. He had a lot of shame in him. Henry Fonda putting his coat on him, like even just the look he gives him, he's clearly like, it's just, I, I pity. Compassionate. I pity that, I pity that you, have, you have become this, that you would feel. He even says yeah. it to him, how, like a lot of it is, a lot of the language between them two is, you know, mm. how could you be this kind of person? How could you do that? And how could you feel this way? Mm-hmm. And that really strikes at the heart of what the film is trying to say is, well, in situations like this, personal prejudice has to be taken out of the room. You have mm-hmm. to look at these things logically. And actually the journey for every man in that room is overcoming that of, yeah. What the baggage that I brought into the room and then leaving it at the door. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it's clearly a thing of just like, I genu- like it's there's no animosity at the end of the film. Yeah. Even though juror number three goes to hit him at one point. And then there's that r- brilliant scene where the they're stabbing, recreating the, the stabbing punch, yeah. scene. And he even just, he goes, he goes, put winds up so to go and stab him. And he just yeah. goes, nobody's, nobody's getting hurt here. Yeah. But there's definitely something powerful in the idea that we don't know their names. And that the only two people who we get names from at the end are the two. And actually, maybe not even powerful, you know, Sophie, we were talking about this, you were talking about this beforehand about the idea of Henry Fonda wearing white. Mm-hmm. Because in Westerns, you know, with the only way, you, in black and white, the only way you can distinguish between a good guy and a bad guy is by making them mm-hmm. wear different colours. So, mm-hmm. bad guys always wore black, good guys always yeah. wore white. You know, this riding in thing. The fact that he's the only one who gets a name, apart from, I mean, the other guy. He's obviously the protagonist, hero, whatever, mm. because everyone loves a hero, everyone's a central character. Yeah. My issue with the symbolism behind him wearing a white coat Mm. and the rest of the jurors wearing a black coat is it kind of indicates that we need 
a white knight. We need a perfect yeah. moralist. We need a saint in order to be able to get to the truth. Yeah. And I'm coming from the perspective where I do feel like everyone has goodness and compassion and kindness in them. And you shouldn't have to put someone on a white horse to come save the, like, yeah, I don't know, the evil the and, like, yeah, yeah, the, the, I don't know, immoral people. I just felt like that yeah. was unnecessary. And there is this quote from, oh, I lost it at the movies, which is one of my favorite books on cinema. Mm which says something among the lines of theatricality doesn't always mean dramatic strength. I'm paraphrasing, but it's about like, what yeah. was the intention of the director? Like, because sometimes you're being overly theatrical and sometimes it does help bring the story to the front and like move mm -hmm. the story forward. Yeah. And sometimes it has meaning and other times it just, Colors and it's, like flashy, yeah. like someone's read a book on how to make a movie, and it's like, oh, well, the good guy wears white, and the white yeah. guy wears black. For me, that was an unnecessary move. Even though I don't consider myself to be a minimalist in my life, when it comes to films, mm. I kind of take a much more practical approach. Where it's like, if it doesn't need to be on camera, cut it. And it's like, for me, it would be much more impactful if you just blended with the rest. But where I want to go back to, which I think we can wrap up with that one is the actual final scene with the courtroom steps. Mm. What did you make from that scene? Well, you know, it's interesting though, because as I said, I think there's there's definitely probably something in the kind of power behind a name and also mm -hmm. the anonymity of a jury, jury room. And do these people feel like they could say all of these things because they don't have a name? Yeah. You know, you're in, you know, it's very easy to say all these things when no one knows who you are. And it's also then something that has been brought on in a lot of other films. Mm the one that always jumps out to me is Layer Cake. Mm. The f again, the final scene of Layer Cake yeah. is Daniel Craig turning to the camera and going, you don't even know my name. Mm -hmm. Even though this whole film, we've been hearing about these characters, you only get to the end, you go, oh crap, I didn't actually know your name. You know, they could have even done something similar in that. But then, you know, to me, it feels like there is something clearly there to make a statement of the anonymity of a jury room and, you know, not having a name and how much power is kind of in that. Mm -hmm. And the fact that, again, it is the white knight who's riding away who... We know who he is. I think the effect of that scene on the courtroom steps when they exchange names is to diffuse the tension that's just been built up in the preceding scene where the guy has the meltdown. Yeah, it's very grounding. So it's, yeah, so it's kind of like the film lands there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I agree. And it, it, they could have left it more cliffhangery mm -hmm. and more shocking, mm -hmm. but... Mm -hmm. It was nice the way that yeah. everyone was brought back down to earth. Well, as I say, I feel like it, it and that's of the time as well. I feel like if you made that film today, that's probably cliff more cliffhangery. Right, mm -hmm. yeah. And I do feel like the directional decision to remove the names from the equation when you're when mm. they are in the room is because at the end of the day, one of the themes that are addressed in the film is democracy. Mm. And the lack of names kind of implies that democracy is not about the individual, right? It's about the decision that needs to be made by a group of people. Collective. The collective, right. And collective doesn't have a name. Like the no. jurors, that's, what you, that's all you need. Mm -hmm. So the number aspect is like practical, just address each other. Yeah. So for them to step out there and kind of be like, hey, here's my name, here's my name. It's, as you said, Simon, it's very grounding and it kind of humanizes them because yeah. we saw like the ugliest side of a lot of them mm. in that room. And when they make the, I don't want to say the right decision, but they make a decision that's 
the one that's in the majority, mm. they go outside and they're like, yeah, I actually have a name. And it kind of puts a face to the name yeah. and it's yeah. it makes you feel like, for me anyway, it made me identify with everyone because I do have biases. I do have mm. like things that I don't want to admit and like seeing myself in these, like some of these dialogues, it was very illuminating just be able to step out there and be like, and my name is Sophie. You know, it's yeah. like AA, kind of like admitting the guilt <laughs> yeah, and just yeah. putting myself out there and being human. It gives you faith that everyone does have critical faculties yeah. and that guy, Henry Fonda's character, extracted them one by yes. one from those jurors. But the way I saw it was that, mm. uh, with regards to the jurors not being given names from the beginning, is that they were essentially like a pack of 11 people that all decided oh. that... No, but oh, I mean, 11. Yeah, there were 11 yeah, yeah. of them that said this guy's guilty mm -hmm. and they were like this pack that hadn't really thought it through and then over time they then regained their identities one by one as as uh, henry fonda drew it out of them and then they got their names back by the right. end i mean it's a, it's a huge i mean even like in today's society the idea of unconscious biases is mm -hmm. such a huge thing and to this puts this you know the film puts unconscious biases in the most critical of scenarios mm -hmm. Where... And also conscious bias as well. Yeah. Because they're, like, they're flat out racist. Yeah, yeah the old man is a flat out racist, yeah. <laughs> yeah, one of the guys is like, um, well, if we don't convict him now, he'll just do it. It's something else bad. So we <laughs> might as well just electrocute him now. Yeah. That was one of the arguments. Yeah. It'd be interesting to speak with someone who's much older about this film. Because for us, we don't know the context of the time in which it was released so well. And I suspect that this film probably was quite progressive in its day. Yeah. Considering the topics that they're addressing. And the ending, mm -hmm. how they all get through these prejudices, yeah. prejudice. <laughs> the, like the year before, there were still segregated buses in America between black and white. Mm. So yeah. think of that. Imagine that film being released covering those topics and that was still happening. Very, yeah, yeah, very it's progressive. Yeah. Cool. So any final thoughts on the final scene? I love the film <laughs> I completely had forgot like it's one of those ones that so the ending works for you as well yeah, yeah, yeah. the ending works for me yeah, yeah. I mean it, as I say it could have ended in other ways in which you don't get a verdict or we just see them all walk off or even more of a white knight riding off into the sunset type mm -hmm. of thing but actually as you say Simon they just ground it and that's it mm. they just go that's it they don't, they don't feel there's no need to there's no need to drag it out like that you know you could have easily made that final scene on the steps like a 10 minute conversation between yeah jurors eight and, or nine and ten about or eight and nine about you know the case and especially the fact that you know the even after that the, the last person you see walking down the steps is three mm. is the final one to come out the white knight runs away and the last thing you see is him going down the steps i think he even turns back and looks at the court and then that's it yeah. okay. anything else would have you know you definitely could have had it that they prolong that scene in some way but actually it kind of sits quite nicely as you say as a grounding moment for everything and a stepping out of that pressure cooker into okay back to reality of who we are as people and not just numbers cool uh i'm calling this a wrap thank you for joining me ben and simon i hope we don't get cancelled on day one i feel like that's fingers crossed fingers crossed <laughs> uh, yeah i'm looking forward to be doing this with you every other week yeah right we're doing this right we're committed we're committed we're doing it's it. happening um 
So that's the show, people. That's the show. Thank you for listening to that final scene. Join us every other Wednesday for iconic and not so iconic final scenes in TV and film history, along with recommendations and the occasional philosophical rabbit hole, which I feel like we're going to get to eventually. If you like what you just heard, please subscribe to wherever you're listening to your podcast. And if you're feeling extra giving today, please rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts. Bye. Did you like it? Did you like that? Did I like it? I loved it. I, I had no idea you could milk a cat. I have nipples, Greg. Could you milk me? Good morning. Morning. Good morning. Oh, and in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. <laughs>